Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you something, people. Never, ever, ever deal with Spirit Airlines. They are the biggest piece of crap I have ever seen in my life. Here's what happens. Me and Joanne are flying back east at Christmas time. Now, we don't want to spend an arm and a leg, so I go through orbits. Now, we're going to fly back on Christmas Day because we figure, you know, we're not selling, we're not decorating our place this year because we're going back. We're going Wednesday before Christmas. We're there for like nine days back east. We're going to New Jersey. We're not going to go to Richmond to see my mom and my sister. And so I call, and there's one flight at nine o'clock at night on Christmas. We think that's perfect. So I go through, and the rate I'm getting is great. It's like, honestly, it's like, 383 for round trip. Now, given the, the spirit flight had a long layover in Vegas, that's okay. We're going to go back. So we go through orbits and I go through the whole thing because we go to the website of spirit's website. And it's just impossible to go through. So I sit there and I, Joanne does it on, on Sunday night. It doesn't, doesn't work. She's all pissed. I go, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. So I do it and we get through and it says, orbit says we cannot do your, uh, your flight. We cannot processes i'm thinking well wait i picked my seats except i didn't pick them for spirit so we call orbits and the girl says oh wait a second so then she calls spirit and our price from the time she called spirit i mean orbits and they talked to spirit the price the flight we're supposed to get at nine o'clock at night went up like 125 bucks so we said well this is bullshit you know this is this is crap so she goes the girl was very helpful at orbits they're trying to get us through to spirit they finally get joanne through to spirit and gets disconnected right off the bat and never calls us back. So I go online and then they're not even offering this nine o'clock flight. So I'm going to tell you people it's, it's at spirit airlines and they don't even, they have like an automated tweet. I tweeted them. They didn't say anything. They're, they're a piece of crap. So if you do anything, don't go through spirit. And I find out later you have to pay for all your bags. You have to pay to get your ticket printed out like $13 to get your ticket printed out. They don't do wireless. I mean, in an e-ticket, that's why they're a problem. And you, your hand, your carry-on bag, basically, I could take my purse, so I could take her purse. And then the rest, we're screwed because it's like, and they charge you like 35 bucks. And if you don't know that, and if you go to see them, they charge you $100 for your bag. So seriously, tweet them at Spirit Airlines. They're the biggest piece of crap. Don't deal with them. That's my rent. I actually talked longer than I did, but I was so pissed. We ended up getting a deal for 428 more than I wanted to spend. But she really wants to go back. So I said, oh, okay, you know, well, at least I get the night of seven fishes, a nice Italian meal on Christmas Eve at a nice Italian restaurant. Anyway, we have a great guest. He's been on a few times and he's coming back. Uh, he sent me a message yesterday and it was perfect because he has a show he's promoting, which I went last year, which was amazing. And it just turns out I had the 12 o'clock spot open because I was I'm booking. I book at the last minute now because it works that way. My guest is Steve Scrovin. How you doing, Steve? Hi, Coop. How you doing? Good. You know, you're shaking your head up. Have you ever dealt with spirit? I No. Well, but I just heard I, I, I go back forth to Cleveland because that's where I'm from. Um, and uh, uh, used to go United, and I think they've cut back their flights. But I was told the Spirit has a nonstop from LA to Cleveland, and now you're scaring me. Well, what happens is, well, it's funny because we went, as it said, and I yelled at Orbits too, because it's a matter of, yeah, if this flight at nine is sold out, still don't have to post it because you yeah. know we're excited. We're like, it's a cheap ticket, you know, yeah. And then the other one when I booked it, it ended up going from when I booked it. When I clicked on, we went up eighteen dollars. Yeah, but but the spirit that what happens is I went on the website and then the wasn't listed. And I think what they do is they go, well, we can't. It's a bait and switch. We can't give you this. We can give you that. And I mean, if you're going to Cleveland, but if you want to take if you want to take any luggage, you gotta you gotta pay for it in advance. It's right. like buying a ticket to a concert. Right. It's the craziest thing. And who have you ever heard you have to pay to get your ticket printed? No, that's weird. Like email usually they used to do back in the beginning of email, they'd say, Okay, well here's we're gonna charge you two dollars to get your ticket and it was I mean for like a concert and stuff like that. You mean to was, print out your own ticket. Back when they started out, like I would you know, if, it's, if you wanted to get the e tickets, this is years ago. They yes. would, they would do it because I guess it was a new technology and it was easier for you. And they or so they ticket trial would mail them to you. Right. So I would always get a mail, like if I get tickets for a concert, now they, they go and sell like Eight months before, right? But they used to do it. But that's but this they they don't they don't do e ticket, and you have to pay thirteen ninety five to get your ticket. Thirteen ninety five. So you can't print it out at your house. No. Before you go. No. That you, was, that was the problem. You have to go to the airport. Yes. And they charge you thirteen ninety five. Well, if you go to the airport in advance, I think it's free. But if you go the which no one's going to the airport to buy their ticket. Sure. But if you go the day of your flight, it's thirteen ninety five for you get the ticket. So whatever the price is so cheap, you have to figure in thirteen ninety five. That's twenty six dollars plus your baggage. And, yeah, and yeah, it's just crazy. So wow. hopefully you'll find another. Well, you know what? But it's not that bad of a flight from here to Cleveland. Oh well, you know it's it's four and a half five yeah. hours. Yeah, but there's no other ones that fly straight. Uh, it, it changes. It, United was the way to go. 
you know, it was a continental hub at one point, and then they merged. And so United was, you know, I just can't do layovers anymore. I but but one thing is it's Cavalier season, so you know those sports guys want a straight flight. So I bet there's gonna be more straight flights going because everyone could wants be. to see LeBron. Could be. So 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 uh, we, you, I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah. Now, good, it's good to see. I, I I've been all over. I've been uh, I've been spent three of the last uh, twelve months out of the country. Yeah, I want to talk about now. People, if you know Steve, uh, Steve wrote and was executive producer and two-time Emmy winner for Everyone Loves Raymond. Yep. And you were there from the the beginning. Nine years. And to the end. Okay, so and there was a documentary about sourcing out. Everyone yeah, Loves Phil Raymond. Phil Rosenthal created the show. He did a, a documentary called Exporting Raymond, which was the story of it being introduced to uh, Russia and adapting it to Russia, where they had, they had, they take our scripts, they adapt them to their culture, they cast them with the local actors. And it was a big hit in Russia, uh, ultimately. But f- the movie exporting Raymond was uh, just the the initial uh, contact there. Uh, Jeremy Stevens, a friend of mine who was also nine years on the show, sat next to me for nine years. He's really been the consultant who's been there for the better part of four or five years uh, throughout uh, their production. They blew. They show the show every day. It's a daily show there. And they blew through our 200 episodes. It took us nine years in about a year. So they they take the episode and they actually do it verbatim, except they have to make it more to their culture. Yeah, and it's yeah they they take the story and they adapt it. Okay. Uh, so it's not necessarily verbatim, but it is uh, that story, and uh, you know sometimes it's some of the same jokes if they translate, uh, especially if they're behavior oriented rather than word oriented, and they uh, they adapt it. Uh, so I. I spent some time in Israel doing this. Spent some time in Russia after they had blown through all of our episodes and were writing original episodes, which was really interesting for me because by the time we got to the end of our nine years at Raymond, we thought we are done. We don't want to repeat ourselves. We want to go out on top, which we fortunately ended up doing. And we thought there's no more stories. And here in Russia, they blow through our 200 stories, and they want to do 200 more. So when you go over, now you're saying you you had to write an original scripts. Now, yeah. is is it a writing room where it's like you, I guess, and Jeremy? Well, in this in this case, uh, it was yeah, and Jeremy has done this too. It was a writing room, and I was there just to help them break the stories. I don't do the writing; they do the writing. Are they Russian writers? Russian writers. I had a translator. And uh, it was interesting for me to go back after eight years of being away from the show and, and thinking that the gas tank was empty and realizing, you know, revisiting these characters that I had, you know, a big part in, if not creating, helping raise, you know, to adulthood. And it was like putting on an old tuxedo. Okay. And it, you really, and you're kind of, you know, it's maybe a little bit tight, but it still fits. And hey, look, there's some stories in the pocket here. Right. <laughs> and... So that was kind of uh, these characters I knew so well fell right back into that. The Indian experience was totally different. The Indian experience was I had to go there from soup to nuts. Well, how does it? Okay, so I have a question for you. How does it turn out that India decides to do Everyone Loves Raymond? Now, did they get in touch with Phil? Uh, Phil or, or no, or? they uh, they get in touch with Sony. Or Sony is actually uh, the company that has uh, they they had nothing to do with the original uh, series. That was HBO Independent and uh, David Letterman's company, Worldwide Pants. But Sony has this infrastructure for foreign uh, formats. So they, uh, you know, they've done Married with Children in Russia and The Nanny, and they've done it. You know, they've tried all these. They're always looking for different markets, and so they probably pitched it to uh, some channels in India. They were trying to find the right, right relationship with the right network in India. And they finally found what's called the Star Channel, which is the biggest one in India. And they were attracted to the show, as far as I know, because of the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. Because that's a big deal in, in India. Because normally, the uh, you get married. If you're a woman, you get married and you go live with your husband's family. Okay. So there's always a power struggle between the matriarch who is there, the queen, and the upstart wife. So our Marie-Deborah relationship that was very recognizable for them. Their main driver of television are their soap operas, which are their daily soaps. Women control the remote in India, I was told. 
And this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship is the, usually the central thing there, and it's, and it's very formulaic, apparently. Uh, so this was an, this is a way to do a show that was about family, which is universal, and this is why Raymond can travel around the world, unlike, say, another great show like Seinfeld, which right. doesn't. But people aren't going to get, what's a, what's a black and white cookie? <laughs> like, right, it doesn't... exactly. You'd have to find all the analogies to that, which would be too difficult. Um, so the family's universal, but the first thing they said to us was, uh, you know, our, our premise was the parents live across the street, and that's like way too close in America. Well, for them, it would be unheard of for the same, the mother and father to live in the same town with their kids and not live in the same house. So the first thing they said to Phil and I, they said, can they live in the same house? And we kind of looked at each other for a minute and said, yeah, sure, why not? You know, then you don't have to invent excuses for them coming over. They're there. So that was one adaptation. And it's different than the, when I did it in Israel and Russia, because Israel and Russia are essentially Western cultures. And the holidays are different, and there are you know some different uh, anomalies the, to American culture. But India is really different. It's just the South Asian country, and it's different not only in the sense of holidays and references, incidental cultural references, but just in their attitude toward elders. It's a much more reverent country toward elders. And like I said, the idea of the parents not living in the same house would be foreign to them. Right. They'd be like, wait a second, this 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 isn't true. This isn't real TV because this doesn't happen. I mean, I can well, see. Yeah, they, they wouldn't understand. It wouldn't, what's the big deal, the parents being close by? Right. They think it, it, they're probably going, thank God their parents the, aren't living with them. The, yeah. In America, that's like, oh, the parents, that's intrusive because we, we're such a modular society in America. We hardly even have neighborhoods anymore. We don't know our neighbors and we all live in gated communities and, and uh, it's, you know, go to private schools and all of that kind of stuff. In India, it is much more communal living. And so the idea of the parents living close by is not a big deal. It is what it is. So you have to deal with that, and you have to deal with the idea that it's um, just stylistically, the way they do comedy in India is, first of all, the economics are different. They don't have the money that we have that where they can produce a show once a week in front of an audience. They Just like in Russia and in Israel, too, they don't have the funds for that. So they have to do the show, shoot it like a movie, and do what they call cross-boarding it, where we're going to do three episodes, all the bedroom scenes of three different episodes or all the kitchen scenes of two different episodes so that they can shoot it like that. And so you, the actors are always having to be reminded of what show they're doing and what okay. scene they're in. They're not doing it in order. It's not contiguous. The, uh, the other thing, which was really different about India, was that their comedy is very broad generally and very presentational and very loud. And they, when they showed me that first day they were there, the first day I was there was sort of an orientation for me to Indian television. And so people are doing PowerPoint presentations. They're talking to me about demographics. They're telling me all that stuff about the soaps and the women controlling the remote. And then at the end, they showed me some examples of Indian sitcoms. And I was frankly horrified. <laughs> because it was big and broad and loud and they not only had a laugh track which was kind of a very mechanical laugh track they didn't spend a lot of time trying to make it sound like real laughs it was more like so charlie brown laughs yeah (laughs) but they also underscored the jokes with the music, which you never do. So wait, so wait, so when you hear a joke, then they'd have a, like a... Or, or the, yeah, there would be like a... Or something leading up to the joke, you know, some, uh, you know, some music staying. But not only that, on top of that, they would literally put on bells and whistles. On the punchline would be zing, wah, wah. No, actually sounds. Sounds, slide whistle, <laughs> all that stuff that's like Benny Hill... Uh, that we would make fun of. Right. You know, we, we actually would go, you know, somebody wah, makes a wah, bad wah. joke, you go, wah, wah, yeah. wah, or you go, ba-dum-bump, rim shot. It's all rim shots there. All different kinds of noises to tell you where the joke is. And that's how they do comedy. And I said, oh my God, you, uh, uh, is this what you're going to do on our show? Said, no, no, we want to do it your way. We want to do it real and with the subtlety of the character. And uh, to their credit, they did it. They bought into the whole program. And uh, the actors loved it. The directors loved it because it wasn't this goofy, silly 
stuff. Well, yeah, it's probably a sitting there going, you know, you're used to seeing hokey, and you're sitting there going, and you're an actor, and you're going, I don't want to do hokey. I mean, it's there. There's nothing worse, I'm sure. Right. Well, it's like as a comic, you know, when you're if you're in doing a stand up, and if yeah. someone in the audience goes, as you said, boomch. You sit there and go, yeah, shut, uh, shut the hell up, you know. Yeah. But for an actor, it must be hard when you're sitting there and you want to be an actor, and your delivery really doesn't count because, as it is, it's that whoop, and it must be right. weird. It must have been a big relief for the actors. Well, the actors really bought into it because we were actually rehearsing scenes that had complexity and characters that had dimension, and that's what they got into this for. So they would come in without being on their time off to rehearse. And uh, and do table reads where they weren't even getting paid to be there because they wanted to, you know, they bought into the program. Now the question is, and and I have I haven't gotten the the latest returns yet because it just debuted. They did, uh, they had fifty episodes in the can before they even put on the air because, as you say, once once they start putting out of the air, it's five six days a week and those so same as russia they're gonna do it like every day so it's almost yeah. like it's almost like a soap opera it is yeah and, and it's along those lines whether it's accepted by the audience is a question now because it is so different because it is more real and it's not pointing you at the jokes and it's going to be subtler based on behavior uh the, the early returns were it was a little shaky because it's something the the people, especially out into the hinterlands, the in Mumbai, in Delhi, in the cities, more sophisticated audience, just like you would have anywhere in yeah, America. Like, I, anywhere. Mean, I mean, somewhere in New York or LA is going to get something more than a Tupelo. You know, I mean, certain right. places just different because that's what they're used to. Right, but in India, you know, in in the hinterlands, uh, the education level, it's it's uh, there's a wider gap in the education levels and the literacy levels, and so the big broad stuff plays better. So we're going to see if it actually works there. They've promised me, you know, that the joke was, you know, yeah, after two weeks, you're going to start putting wing, zing, zing, wah, wah on everything uh, when they find out that their audience isn't getting it. So uh, I have to uh, find out what the latest returns now because now it's been a couple of months. So you took you took the original scripts out. Mm-hmm. So now how do you sit there, you know, the whole, one of the whole funny things in the show is when... The, the interaction of going back and forth to the house. And that's something that, you know, yeah. people wait for and that gets a laugh, you know, cause it's like anything, you know, Deborah, da, you know, yeah. how do you, how do you, as a writer, how do you sit there and change it where it's like, you don't have, that's not, it's like, and you also wrote for Seinfeld. It's sort of like when the parent, when you, when you're actually sort of like when Kramer comes in, you yeah. know, you, you get used to that yeah. and, and you like that. And that's a good part of the show. Yeah. How do you, as a writer sit there and go, well, wait a second, you're losing that because people are, you know, in, in America, you know, as I said, when Kramer would pop in, yeah. we left because we don't we don't have neighbors like that. I mean, there's yeah. people that come over and knock on your door, right. but that's what made it great. And this show, I mean, there's parents, but you, they come. How do you sit there as a writer and say, okay, you know what? I have to build in funny into a situation that they already know is there. It's not the whole gag of them right. coming over. They're there. That's what they're used to. How? I mean, did the scripts change a lot or how do you well, work around it, it? It's funny because on that particular point that you're talking about, it changed very little. It really mattered very little. When you think about it, even on Raymond, you know, they would just come in and it's like, and you would ask, what, they never lock the door? No, they don't lock the door. They don't knock. They just come in. So in a way, it was harder in America because you need people to come into the scene or else you don't have a show. Right. So it actually was easier there because you weren't always questioning why they're there and why and how did they have access to it? Because eventually after that all you know them and being intrusive kind of wears off and then they're just there and you can get jokes off of oh uh ray and deborah or in this case uh uh, uh sumit and maya are making out of the couch and and robert walks in you know oh, oh, oh we uh you know it's intrusive you get that joke and then you get on with your story so it actually made it easier okay because we didn't have to deal with that um what is a little bit different is the added there was one episode like what would happen is we'd watch an episode of the original show and everybody there i didn't need a translator in india because everybody speaks english or at least you know the educated people do and so i didn't need a translator like i did in russia so everybody spoke english and we had direct communication we would watch an episode and then they would turn around to me and say okay this we'd have to change this this wouldn't work or that wouldn't work 
And there was an interesting story about, we had an episode that was written by Tucker Cawley, I think it was our second season, it was called Good Girls. And Good Girls was a euphemism for virginity. And the premise of the show was that Marie likes Robert's girlfriend, Amy, better because she's a good girl. She hasn't had premarital sex. And Deborah doesn't care, but Ray cares because his status with his brother and his mother is different if Marie likes Amy better than Deborah. So he kind of blurts out to his mom, you know, Deborah was a good girl too. And Marie is surprised by this. Ray goes home and tells Deborah this whole thing. And Deborah laughs, you know, of course, you could tell me I was a good girl. And Ray says, well, I, I, I kind of did. So Deborah rolls her eyes. It culminates in some dinner party or some celebration that they're having where everybody's there, including Amy. And now Marie is acting very solicitous toward Deborah in a way she never would because she has this different idea that she was a good girl. And all of these revelations happen where Amy finds out they've all been talking about her sex life. And uh, what ends up happening is that we find out, Frank blurts out that Marie was not a good girl. Okay. And that's like a huge thing. And they watched that and they said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we could do that with our, our matriarch character that we could say she had premarital sex. And then they started talking about it and they eventually talked themselves into a way that they could do it. If it was couched in sort of an innocent way. And of course they got married soon afterwards, which is the way it was in, in uh, the American version. But there was a little addendum to our version where because they found out that Marie was pregnant before she was married with Robert, like two months different, they've been lying about Robert's birthday for his entire okay. life. And so the tag of our episode is Robert saying, well, wait a minute. When, when is my real birthday? And they're all kind of sitting around the table and they kind of look at the calendar and they go, oh, you know what? It's today. And Robert is stunned by this, and Ray starts going, happy birthday to you, and starts singing this very downbeat version of happy birthday that everybody eventually joins in, and that's it. That's our tag. They could, they could figure out a way to make the Indian mom not a virgin before she got married, but they could not do that tag of the birthday thing because it was just too dark. That's so crazy. Now, now, so how did they... Too downbeat of an ending. And that's, so how do they sit there as the writers? Do you, I mean, because you don't know the culture. So it's sitting yeah. there, you can't say, well, let's do bing, bang, bing. You know, you, you can't sit there because you don't know. Do they sit there? I mean, how do they... We sit down and we try to figure it out. We say, okay, what can we do? You can't do that. What can we do? And they say, okay, well, we'll just end it on this. We won't do that tag. We won't, you know, we'll do some other thing. Or 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 we just end the show there. So you, you're making these decisions... Uh, uh, but what what was interesting is they could figure out a way to do the sexual part with the mom, but the darkness of Robert having this birthday or illegitimacy that was too much. It's just you know because we, we don't we don't think about how cultures go across you know and you and you sit there because we watch TV and it's like anything it's like if you sit there I'll flip around sometimes and you know because with. You AT&T, U-verse, you have so many stations and you yeah. have like the Armenian stations and you see some of these Armenian music videos yeah. that are just so god-awful. It's like some guy with like black jeans and a black shirt and they're yeah. like putting like flashing stuff behind him and you look at the quality and you go, you got to be joking me, but that's what they watch and that's what they're accustomed to. So when something is different and the story, like for you guys, the stories, they have to be, you know, some of them have to be punched up probably because they just won't get it. Well, yeah, they, they, they have to be put in an Indian context. And the Indians were very hot to write original stories, even before they got to the end of all of our stories, because there were, there were certain cultural things they wanted to take advantage of. So they actually wrote a couple of uh, original episodes uh, you know, in the first season. And uh, one had to do with... Uh, the Marie character making a mark, uh, putting a, a soot, a little dirt mark on the kid's forehead. That's like a superstitious thing. And it, what it means is, is when a, a baby, a young child, goes out in the world, they're not perfect, so the gods won't be jealous. Okay. 
and do something harmful to them. So, so you, so this soot mark is a little flaw that you're artificially putting on the kid. So they wanted to do a story where the the mother does this. The Marie character does this. Uh, her name in India is called Dolly, and Maya, the Deborah character, sees this and wipes it off because she doesn't believe in that stuff. So you have the generational thing about the superstitious older people and the young hip, uh, younger people. And it's a back and forth about putting this mark on the child that, of course, blows up into a big family argument. But they wanted to do an episode that the, it would be really recognizable to their audience in a way that some of our episodes wouldn't necessarily, you know, they would work, but they wouldn't be really addressing specifics of Indian culture. So now, now when they do an episode like that, yeah. are you involved in that too, and yeah. helping punch up jokes? I mean, even though you don't, or do you just are you overseeing it and saying, this, "Are you there for an episode like that?" Because, yeah. as I said, you don't really know about that about that uh, tradition. Uh, yeah. Are you there more just to supervise and make sure it goes? In I, on- I'm there, yeah, to help them with the story, help them uh, break the story, and they're telling. And this is what's great about the the experience for me is I get this immersion in this culture in a way that I would never get as a tourist because I'm literally sitting in a room talking. We're all talking about the stories of our lives and how my story is told differently than your story. And they're telling me, well, this would be a story for our family that I don't really have access to because that's something that we don't have, that we don't do. And so I can, in broad strokes, once it boils down to the conflict of the people, guide them to an ending. But all the incidentals of this thing with the the mark on the forehead, they have to tell me about. And I have to ask questions about, okay, what would this mean if this happened? What would it mean if that happened? Could it go this way? Uh, and how how far do you go with making the parents this superstitious? Or is, is that too going to play too much or too you know, little, you know, it's those kind of things they're telling me about, whereas I'm telling them, okay, here's where you can take this conflict. Okay. So now how long were you over there? Well, I was over there for all told for two months, two weeks in November, last November, almost a year now. And then five weeks starting at the first of the year through mid February, beginning of February. And then I went back for a week in April. Now, like what, what city are you in? Mumbai. Okay. Now, what? What's? I mean, was it? What's that like? Because you're for five weeks. Yeah. And now you're you're you lived in New York for many years. You yeah. Know, and, and you're from Cleveland, so you know yeah. we know cities. You know. Yes. But now, now those. I mean, what's it like being an American over there? And also, though, being a privilege, somewhat privileged in the fact that you know people. These people yeah. are going to show you around, so you're just not some dopey American dropped in the middle of the city. Right. Well, I was staying in a five star hotel overlooking a shanty town. So the tremendous contrast in Mumbai. It's 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 tremendous crowding, and the first thing that struck me as I went from the airport to the hotel the first time is the traffic, and I have to tell you, compared to Mumbai traffic, we here in LA are pussies. You so so the 405 is like a blink compared there to is, that. Yeah, there is no 405. First of all, there there's there was a, something of a freeway coming out of Mumbai. And there are lines painted on the roads, but those are merely suggestions. <laughs> they are just for decoration because they have so many different sized vehicles. They have they have buses, they have trucks, they have SUVs, they have regular cars like we have. But in addition to that, they have these what's called auto rickshaws. And there's these three-wheeled vehicles, which are basically gas-powered golf carts. They have they, they kind of shaped like a beetle. They have a hood on them, but they're nothing more. There's the sides are open. It's you know my friend Ralph Nader would would have a heart attack in this town because you, it's literally driving in a little tin can. And you have those plus you have people on motorcycles, then people on bikes and on the freeway. Well, well, well on, what is in not, the city on, streets? On the in the city okay. streets. So it's just it's, it's crazy. It's crazy, and it's and it's jockeying for position. So it's it's just clogged arteries this the and nobody uh, i never drove there uh and they drive on the other side of the road just like the british system uh but you always have a driver and even people who live there have drivers because it's very cheap labor <coughs> that's the other thing that we had to deal with as far as different cultural thing excuse me <coughs> is that even middle class families there have housekeepers 
because labor is so cheap there. So there is the issue of it would seem odd that they didn't have a wouldn't have a housekeeper. Okay. And I had to say, well, you know, that's interesting because if that makes the Deborah character Maya's life easier, that's not good. We need to make her life harder. And we need to have the mother be able to fill in some of those things that she doesn't think that Maya is doing well enough. So a housekeeper is problematic. So what we came up with was, yeah, they do have housekeepers. We don't see them all the time, but they're always quitting. Okay, so then it gives that, the whole thing, it gives a whole other character of the, you know, it could be, are they quitting because of her or the mom? Yeah, they're quitting mainly because the the, the mother-in-law is driving them out. And there's not good enough for the mother-in-law, or there, you know, it's that—that that was the the method we decided to go with as far as housekeepers are going. So it's not like the Murphy Brown, uh, right, uh, with the receptionist uh, with that Kramer. was always changing. Kramer was the one on the Seinfeld. Yes, was- yeah. So, so that's, but that was a very real thing that uh, the economics of that place are such that even middle-class families can afford a housekeeper because they pay them nothing, or they give them at least a roof over their head. And that's something that would not be that would be only for rich families. Now, now what was the food like over there? Because you know, anything, anyone, if you live back east, you know, you, you like good food. I mean, was it was it was it culinary very different, or could you get a lot of American staples? Or what was it like? I, well, I love Indian food, and uh, I was staying in a hotel where they had a lot of good Indian food. Uh, what you know, what I noticed about Indian food is it's a vegetarian country, supposedly, and I am a vegetarian, so I thought I'm going to fit in great here. So. Most of the people I met, though, and maybe this is a city thing, maybe this is an upper class thing, they eat meat. And they were so surprised that me, this American who's kind of bulky, was a vegetarian. They, that just didn't compute to them. Right. And the, the one guy, one of the producers, kept, kept shoving meat at me, and I kept trying to convince <laughs> I don't eat meat. No, you have chicken. No, no, I don't. I love Indian food, and after it being there for two months, I have to amend that by saying I love Indian spices. Okay. Because a lot of Indian food is not even vegetables, as vegetarian as it can be. It's starch. My, my joke about this is the typical Indian meal is uh, a potato over rice wrapped in bread. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's a joke I still have. When an all-carb diet, I had a, a pumpernickel and rye. A pump, yeah, yeah. That's, it's very carbohydrate-intensive and very uh, uh, simple carbohydrate-intensive. Because it's, because those are cheap calories, I, I imagine. So your substitutes, so uh, like uh, I hardly saw like a sprig of broccoli anywhere. So it's so it's not really so much, you know, fresh vegetables. Oh, you know, I saw vegetable stands in Mumbai and everything, so they have them. But <laughs> there was it was really very starch intensive diet, and it's and, it, and a lot of creams, heavy sauces, and and things like that. So it fills you up. And I, I'm sure I put on weight while I was there. You would have to. I mean, it's just because, I mean, that's just stuff that puts on weight, especially for a vegetarian because yeah. you're used to vegetables. Well, one of my uh, trips there, the last day I was there before I went to the airport, my producers, uh, uh, Tony and Dia, who are great people, took me to, they were going to take me to a Chinese restaurant, like their equivalent of, of uh, uh, some franchise. P.F. Uh, Chang. P.F. Chang. And, but it was Indianized Chinese. But on the menu, they had Buddhist feast, which we know here in America is just basically a lot of vegetables over rice. So I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to order Buddhist feast. Get some, finally get some vegetables in this vegetarian country, which they call veg. Veg and non-veg is, is the terminology. And it comes, and it's like nothing like a Buddhist feast. In America. It's, it's like soup. It's in this creamy sauce, and you've got to dive in with your chopsticks to find like a, the tiniest little sprig of broccoli or or a slice of carrot still no vegetables in the buddhist feast in that's, india that's amazing it's crazy and you think you know for, for a country to say it's vegetarian and there's no it's it's it, it's not it's they're it's, not veg- they're potato they're starchitarian they're carbitarian exactly. carbitarian so uh so okay so now we now we're talking now sunday that's this sunday yes you have the it's just it's how many t- explain this, this is a stand up for main street five okay because i went i went to last year and, and it was great show yeah, and what it is, is I'm on the board of a public interest group called Public Citizens, based out of Washington, D.C., and it's the group that Ralph Nader started 44 years ago. He's not been involved since the early 80s, but it continues on uh, basically, uh, you know, 
the reason we know about red dye number two, the reason uh, we no longer take Celebrex, uh, dangerous drugs, uh, the reason we know about toxic shock syndrome, uh, the, re- the, the reason there is uh, movement for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. This is public citizen. Well, what's funny is when you said about Celebrex, because I take Pradaxa for a regular heartbeat. Yeah. Every once in a while I'll see a commercial going, have you heard, you know, because it's it makes you some of the things I want to make your bleed. Have you right. interior in, in you know uh, internal bleeding? And I'm sitting there going to Joanne. I'm like, crap. I wish I did. I could probably get my settlement. But you're right. So this is yeah. the reason why well, people you know to go, about you need I to haven't go. had it though. I, I haven't had the. But you bleeding. should subscribe to Worst Pills, Best Pills, which is Public Citizen has a portfolio that we have a bunch of different departments that work on various consumer issues and democracy issues. So it's promoting safety uh, and and democracy. And in the health research department, which is uh, uh, was used to be headed by the great Dr. Sidney Wolf, now headed by Dr. Michael Carome, uh, they've gotten 25 dangerous drugs off the market, and they put out a newsletter every month called Worst Pills, Best Pills. And it's very highly subscribed to, and you can go on there and you can see what is dangerous, what the side effects are. What are the substitutes that you can take? Because the pharmaceutical industry is always trying to put new products that don't necessarily do anything good for you. Well, it, it's good that you said because you know, and also the pharmaceutical products, you know, and I, I think they work in a big collusion with the doctors because I know someone whose you know wife uh, had cancer and they kept trying to sit there and get her to change her medicine, but then he's looking around the office and he sees all the pens and all the notepads yes. are that company. It's like, well, wait a second for. Two years, she was fine on this. Yeah. But now all of a sudden, it's working. Yeah. But we want you to change, and it's like, and it's medicine, and it's someone's body, and you don't, you don't screw with shit like that. Like I have a friend who's got uh, diabetes, and he was doctor was giving me a Vandia, and I said Vandia, I'm gonna look that up, and I worked that up, worst pills, best pills, and they basically they said don't take this. There are other things you can take that don't have the side effects that have much more proven track record. A Vandia is known to cause heart problems, so. He took the worst pills, best books, built uh, book to his doctor, and his doctor said, "Okay, I'll put you on something different." And you know, it's it's stuff that's killing people that gets to be advertised. You know, all those advertisements. Ask your doctor about this, and so you go in and ask your doctor, and and if you're con- if you're convinced by the commercial, which are you know just basically very expensive lies, then you're going to demand your and your doctor. A lot of times, if he's already not in the pocket of the company, is going to do what his patient wants. But Public Citizen provides this service where you can look it up and find out, okay, this is not good, but this is a good substitute. Now, how did you get involved in starting to do the stand-up shows for Public Citizen? Was that something because your background and you said, I can put a show together and people, I mean, how did you come exactly. up with the first I, one? I was on the board of Public Citizen. I, uh, the farther back story, which I'll just touch on, was I did a movie about Ralph Nader and in the course of doing the movie, I interviewed a lot of people that he knew. A unconventional man. An unreasonable man. Unreasonable. I thought it was, I don't know why I said unconventional. And un- now I feel bad. Similar, but Damn. it's but it's unreason- an unreasonable man. And so I got to meet Sid Wolf, Joan Claybrook, all these people who were founders of Public Citizen. And about a year or so after I did the movie, they asked me to be on the board. And I said, sure, I've never been on a board before. I've been in rooms like comedy writers rooms nothing like that wait was it something that you were really getting gaining interest in after the making the documentary did you sit there and go well this is really fascinating i want to be involved exactly and i what i realized in doing the movie is all these people like at public citizen and other organizations and other places uh people that ralph and johnny apple seated is that there's this whole layer of people who work for these organizations who get very little money to do this but they're just doing it because it's right and they are protecting us and in, in so many different ways. There's this whole layer of people who are unsung who are out there who are real heroes. You know, the, the real, you know, we, we have these superhero movies and superhero TV shows, but these real heroes are these people doing this wonky stuff, operating the levers of power uh, in D.C., fighting corporate power, which is the, which is the you know, the, the Death Star, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I refer to as the Death Star, who are putting profits over people and not caring about the safety, the environmental damage, or any of those externalities. And here you have a group of people, an organization that's on the front lines who doesn't get corporate funding, so they are just there to protect you, both as a consumer and as a citizen. 
and that's what Public Citizen does. So I wanted to promote them. And I thought, I'm on this board, and I'm surrounded by all these high-powered lawyers and doctors and other people and other professions, and I'm kind of the goofball in the room. I'm making everybody laugh at the... And I thought, okay, what can I really do to contribute here? And I thought, well, you know, I, I know how to put on a show. So I decided to raise money by doing a stand-up show. And uh, five years ago, I put on the first stand-up for Main Street. And it's stand-up for Main Street because it's it's against K Street, where the lobbyists are, and Wall Street, where the financial industry is. And so it's we're sort of in opposition to that. Let's think about Main Street. It's not it's much more of a mainstream idea now, even than it was than five years ago. This all this you're going to hear about Main Street a lot in this next election. And so this is stand up for Main Street, and this is to support the work. I I don't even like to use the word benefit anymore because benefit you think okay you're going to give money and it's going to help starving children so somebody it's removed from you. I say this is supporting the work of Public Citizen who is working for us on our behalf. And we do it in the energy realm. We do it in the uh, trade realm. We're, we're the ones who are leading the fight against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is just a corporate coup. Uh, we do it in, in uh, the area of uh, uh, litigation. Uh, we've won 60, uh, not, we've appeared in 60 Supreme Court cases. Um, we do it in lobbying Congress. We have our own lobbying group in Congress called uh, uh, Congress Watch. That's another department we have. But we are really representing people. So do the stand-up thing. It's this Sunday, November 1st. I've got Gerard Carmichael from The Carmichael Show. i got Brent Morin from Undateable, both NBC shows. Kira Sotanovich, who you said you've had on the show. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Jimmy O. Yang uh, from Silicon Valley. Uh, my friend Andrew Sarukas, who's actually a Canadian comedian who lives in L.A. now, but um, works a lot with Russell Peters. He was on Last Comic Standing. Uh, and a young uh, female comedian uh, named Beth Stelling, who uh, has been a Conan, Jimmy Kimmel Live. Very excited to see her. And uh, Will Durst. Do you know Will? Everyone, yeah, the political. Every, that's, I thought he, does he live in San Francisco? He's here. in San Francisco. He did a stand-up for Main Street for me in San Francisco, and he's coming down to do it here in L.A., and he is like the preeminent political. He's like the our modern-day Will Rogers. Now, are you and Schneider hosting it again, or is it just you? It's going to be just me because Lou is out of town. Okay. He's he's busy. He's got parents' weekend stuff going on, so it's just going to be me. And uh, but I'll be hosting it. We'll have those. Uh, we may have some surprise. You know, sometimes some people pop in. Who was the gentleman who spoke? Who was the president or no? The guy who spoke last year, not because he was very entertaining, and I, you can tell he's a little nervous. But Ro Rob Weissman is the president of Public Citizen. And yeah, and he, I tease him because he would love to be a comedian. He says, "You got to write me some material," and I, you know, I give him, uh, you know, grief about uh, trying. I, I don't be funny. Try not to be funny. We right. got, you know, <laughs> and uh, but he, he's actually very obviously an incredibly intelligent guy who's got a, a good sense of humor. Um, but in the middle of the show, he ba basically gives us an update on what's going on in inside the Beltway and what we're doing to uh, to to fight the good fight. And so that's uh, about a 10-minute interlude in the middle of the show. But otherwise, it's just pure stand-up comedy. Oh, last year was great. I mean, we were dying. And it just, I mean, and, and the funny thing about last year was every, everyone on, was so talented. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you, and I, 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 I've only seen him years ago on TV. Man, that Jake Johansson yeah. is, he just, I mean, he blew the roof. I mean, and, yeah. and to blow the roof off. A place that already has had, you know, Sully and Kathy and, and Dimitri Martin. Yeah, just everyone's killing it. He went. I mean, I was sitting there going, "You can't," because we were dying. Yeah. And then he just goes up, and he just and I mean, he took it to a level that was like above yeah. a level. Like you sit there and go, "Why isn't that guy like a yeah. huge star?" I mean, it's crazy. Well, you know, a couple of years ago we had Mark Maron and Greg Fitzsimmons and Fitzsimmons clothes. Fitzsimmons did the same thing, just blew the roof off the place because he's a great comedian. And, you know, as is Mark, you know, and Ray Romano was, uh, uh, did it uh, two years before that. And it's always a great show. It's a great setting. And the other good thing about this is people invite you to a lot of benefits in L.A. And usually it involves getting dressed up and there's valet parking and you got to eat rubber chicken and there's no vegetarian option. And you got to sit through, you got to do a silent auction beforehand. And then a, there's a live auction in the middle of the show and they're hawking you for money there. This is Sunday at 630 at the Writers Guild Theater. It's a beautiful venue. Oh, it's great. Great venue for comedy. 
It's at 6.30. You're out by 8.30. You've got laughs and inspiration. Five bucks to park in the parking garage on a Sunday where there's light traffic and there's no rubber chicken to eat. There's nobody bugging you for a live auction to, to you know, buy a basketball signed by Magic Johnson. It's just you get there, the show starts. We have probably you know we'll have like four comedians. Then we'll have Rob give our update, and then we'll have three more, you know, ending with Brent and uh, Gerard. And uh, it it'll just it's just pound for pound, minute for minute, laughter and inspiration that you can't find anywhere else. Now, will Felicia Michaels be taking pictures again? Uh, Felicia may be. Uh, Tom Caltabiano may be. <laughs> oh, cool. no, it's so funny about Tom. Felicia's done it uh, for the last two years, but uh, I'm, I'm a little late in getting that uh, booked yet. So. Well, no, it's funny because you know, Caltabiano, uh, he was at the old studio when he did the show, and uh, his, I'll tell you, man, he took some pictures. And I put it up as a profile picture, and uh, I have a guy I went to college with who um, I don't. I think he was older than me. I, he, we went to the same college. Yeah. He's like, man, that's really. And he's a photographer. That's a really good picture. I go, yeah. yeah, this guy. And Tom's work is amazing. Felicia's work was great last year. Yeah. Only thing that bummed me out was because she was on the show a little while ago. I she took pictures and she got one of me and Joanne sitting down, but yeah. I, could, I could. It wasn't anywhere, so I couldn't find it. I was like, damn. Oh. So okay. So now, I love Felicia. She's she's, she's great. Yeah. Now okay now now I I saw you posting stuff about the Ralph Nader podcast. Yes. Now. How are you? I know. Did you get involved with that after? I mean, of course, the documentary. How did it happen? What is your function well, on the show? Well, what happened was uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, my friend David Feldman. Do you know David? Yeah, he was on that. He was on the early, early days. Yeah, he had his own podcast, and he and he has a relationship. He had a radio show on KPFK, and uh, about a year and a half ago, it was around in January of 2014, and he said he called me and said. Uh, you know, I'm taking over a spot at the five o'clock spot on KPFK on this Friday uh, because the person who usually has that slot is uh, got to do something. And uh, I talked to the program director, Alan Minsky, and we want to do an alternate State of the Union address, which uh, Obama was about to give uh, on Monday. So we thought of Ralph. Can you help me get in contact with Ralph? And I said, sure. So I contacted Ralph's office and I put them together and Ralph... Uh, said he would do it and so they were going to do a live radio interview with Ralph and then David said to me you have to be there and I said why what do you need me for he says Ralph Nader is my childhood idol and I cannot I, I'm too scared to talk to him alone you have to at least be in the room so I said okay I'll, I'll be in the room so I went to KPFK and uh, sat in the room with uh, with David and David was completely prepared had a great conversation with Ralph I may have uh, jumped in with a couple of things toward the end and we got off that um, call with Ralph and David was just he, he, he was uh, uh, punching the air like Tiger Woods sinking a putt in the 18th hole because this is like you know he was just so excited about this and we thought you know this guy knows everything we should do this every week so we decided, and Alan Minsky, the program director, was there to pitch to Ralph that we do a weekly show. And it took about six weeks to kind of get it underway. And we so we do this show every week now called the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And it started out with just me and David kind of sitting at the feet of the master and asking him what's going on in the world today. And then Ralph uh, got tired of doing all the talking. And decided to invite guests, people that he knew from his long career in uh, working in the public interest. So now we basically have a show with uh, two guests normally. I think tomorrow's show we're just going to have one guest and then we're going to do listener questions. <clears throat> and that's what we do. We record on Wednesday and it it, uh, it airs first at KPFK on Saturday when then it's posted as a podcast where you can get it for free on iTunes or Stitcher. You can go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour and get it there too. We now have a beautiful website, and so we'll have two guests. And it's so Dave and I have sort of backed off a little bit, and we mainly facilitate the show. We introduce the show, introduce Ralph, introduce the guests, and then the Ralphs, uh, the excuse me, the the Ralphs, the, the guests engage with Ralph on whatever topic it is, and it's whatever is interesting him, and he likes to bring people on and, and promote them, uh, people who normally don't necessarily get on. Like, who, like what kind of people? Like who are some of the people? Well, uh, last week we had a guy named Forrest Pritchard who just wrote a book called uh, Growing Tomorrow. And he's an organic farmer. Uh, got 500-acre farm. 
And he wrote a book where he interviews 18 other organic farmers and how this is the new trend and how they are making it work and actually surviving in the face of what is really industrial agriculture that does GMOs, and does pesticides. And so Ralph wanted to talk to him because he read his book. Uh, we had um, a guy named Jim Norikas who writes a blog uh, called uh, Extra which is fairness and accuracy in reporting, and he's a media critic. So we had him on. We talked about uh, the mainstream media. Uh, we had a woman, a nurse, on uh, two weeks ago that Ralph just read an article in the Washington Post because Ralph reads the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal every morning. It takes him about two and a half hours, cover to cover, not just the politics part, everything, because he says if people are interested in it, I'm interested in it. That's my job. So he read this about this nurse named Amy Berman who uh, works in New York, Five years ago, was uh, diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and that's the last stage. Stage five is death. And how she made some choices and had these end-of-life discussions with her doctor where she chose a different, instead of an aggressive uh, chemotherapy track, she decided to go more palliative track. And she's had very five good quality years and is still going. And Ralph was touched by this article, so we talked about her. And she said this great thing. She said, uh, you know, we all have an expiration date. I just happen to have a little bit more knowledge about mine. And so these are kind of the eclectic sort of guests we have. We've, we've had Chris Hedges, who everybody in the, in the uh, progressive world knows is this great uh, author and advocate. We've, you know, Jim Hightower we had. We had uh, we've had public citizen people like Lori Wallach and Rob Weissman, and Sid Wolf and uh, Dr. Michael Carome on to talk about uh, their particular issues. Lori Wallach uh, and, and Ralph just took apart the Trans-Pacific Partnership in, in, uh, in a way that nobody else can because they were there at the ground floor. It was Ralph alerting Lori to this stuff happening in the 90s during the early NAFTA days. And so it's just a tremendous education for me and David every weekend, every week. Now that they can find that on the it's the website. You can go to RalphNaderRadioHour.com or go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you know it's free. There you can subscribe for free. It's called Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Just uh, put that in your search and you'll find it. Uh, either you know if you if you like to do it through iTunes, or you can go just every week to our um, to our website. And there's a backlog of them. They can find you can find all the archived episodes. There you can. Uh, do them by category. You can do them by month of the year. Um, you can uh, every every episode now we've taken uh, for the last month. You can get a transcript too, uh, so you can download downloadable transcript of the episode. Now, so are you working on any American projects now, writing wise? <laughs> I'm not allowed to work in America anymore. No, yeah, I know. It's like you've, actually you've the last around. project I worked was a friend of mine, Tom Saunders, and we were in Canada. So it was a Canadian project. So uh, uh, no, I've got a bunch of irons in the fire. I've the the in the comedy realm. It's it's which is almost near impossible to get something on. But I'm very excited, and I can only talk very cryptically and briefly about this. I'm executive producing another documentary about nuclear power, and uh, we're getting ready to pitch that. Um, and we have a, a very prominent production partner now who's. Who's, who wants to partner up with us? Who can has the juice to get us into the door and has deals at various places? So we're very excited about uh, that, and that's that. I hope we can drive a stake through the uh, nuclear industry with this project. So, so now on, on your show Sunday, now have you, have you written some stand up or what are you going? Because last year you were I get told, I think you were, you were on right before and you were. You, you haven't done stand-up for a long time, and, right? And, but you came up, you know, like Schneider was goofballing around. I, yeah, I, he hasn't done it forever. I'm right. Saying. So, so I actually wrote some jokes, and I'm actually I've been I've been so busy promoting the show and getting people to come. It's as of today, I'm actually going to start to uh, write some material and put together some stuff. So, but don't let that deter you. Still come to the show, people. Are you, are you going to go political? Uh, you know what's 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 ironic for me is when I was doing stand, I was never political. And, and not even uh, sometimes that was topical, but that's always a tough thing because something happens in the news and then 15 people have a bit on it and you're third in line. So I always kind of stayed away from that. So ironically, I'm not really that political. I'll talk about the the organization in in a funny way, uh, and I may talk about um, 
uh, certain aspects of things and try to put it in, in a context that way. But that's the thing about the show itself. It's not political. Right. That's what it does. It's, <laughs> Everybody, it's I, I tell the comics, just do, just be funny. Because all the messaging will take place either by me or by Rob, and it's very brief, and uh, just be funny. And that's what people do. Uh, uh, what was funny last year is Wayne Fetterman did a great set, and he did this great bit about the dollar store or the 99-cent store. I know, it's funny, and I actually like the dollar store. Yeah, well, one of our biggest donors who sits up front every year <laughs> created the 99-cent store. And our our... You know, fundraising person was going nuts in the back, going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" Because he really shredded. Because he shredded, you know, yeah. He said, "It's well, all it, crap." It's all crap. That's why it's ninety nine cents. <laughs> and of course, they went and said, and, and the people loved it. They, they, because oh, yeah, we all go there and we sit there. I mean, because but the people who invented it loved the mocking oh, of it. See, that's funny because we're holding because they have so much money. Oh yeah, they don't. They can. They don't care. And it's not. I always say it's not even the ninety nine cents or it, everything's a dollar because it's point nine 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 nine. Yeah, they just don't want. They don't want to change the size. And it's just differently that it's it's it technically is a dollar yeah because it's not point nine you round up so you go in there and you look and you go point nine nine what the hell is this shit well that was you know I mentioned my movie Fred and Vinny who Angela Sarukas was Vinny Fred Stoller was Fred and there was a bit it's it's basically a story where this guy comes in and moves in with Fred and he starts irritating him and one of the things he irritated him about is is Vinny was I'm going to go to the dollar store and Fred would say no it's the ninety nine cent store. <laughs> And he's now I'm going to the dollar store. Said, Why do you keep calling it the dollar store? It's ninety nine cent store. You know, it's it's not it's one penny less than what you're seeing. You know, that just became an irritating thing. Well, what's weird is that we have to wrap up soon. But the weird thing about the uh, the Vinny story, because I know Vinny D'Angelo, sure. And he used to sit there. I remember I was hanging out with him one time, and he would play this jazz guy he knew named John Cooliani. Uh huh. And what's weird is I found John Cooliani on Facebook. Turns out he's a graduate from the same college, a small college in New Jersey I wow. went to, and I hit him, sent him a message. He lives in New York now, and he's still an amazing piano player. He plays all the time. But yeah. one thing I remember about Vinny, and then yeah. the phone stage on the bit, he'd always pull the phone out and call people. Yes. I remember, I think he called my uh, dad on his birthday or something. Like yeah, that. he would do that. So, stand up for Main Street, this Sunday, November 1st, 6.30, WGA Theater, which is 135 North Doheny. It's Doheny and Wilshire. Very nice theater. Very nice theater, great venue for kind of the comics love it because it's you know every set is a kill spot, and um, for tickets, go to citizen.org and click on the stand up for Main Street button. That'll take you to the page for tickets. You'll see all the details of all the comics, and uh, please come. And what, and what was the newsletter? The pill one? Worst pills, best pills. Okay, I'm gonna check that. Is from the health research department. Yes. Now, do you tweet? No, I don't. Why are you tweeting? I know. I sh- it seems like work to me. Is no, it it's, work? It's, it's no. I it just, seems like I could come up with something every day. And you don't have to. You don't have to. I mean, like I sit there. I have a blast on yeah. the debates. I just pop that shit should out. Should I tweet? Yeah. You should, because you know you have a following. You have something to say. Do you say. ever say stupid stuff? You wish I hadn't. Now is uh, in the permanent record because we all yeah, say stupid well, stuff, can, but then it goes out in the air and then disappears. It. Yeah, I just said there, it's only 132 characters, or whatever. Yeah. So you have to be smart. I mean, I've put some stuff that you know. About Chip Kelly and calling him Winnie the Pooh and all that yeah. crap, but yeah, you know, that's the way it is. So, you how many followers do you have? Fourteen thousand. Wow. Okay. But I just I tweet every once in a while. I'm mean, I tweet every day. So I should tweet. You, you should tweet. Yeah, because you and you and you just do jokes. You can just do. Yeah. It's easy. You know, used to be a comic. So yeah. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming on, Steve. Coop, always a pleasure. Now, now, uh, how can people get in touch with you? Get in touch. With, <laughs> why would they want to get in touch with me? Because you know you got a lot of good stories. Uh, I've got great stories. Uh, I don't know. Scrovan at AOL. Okay, Scrovan and SKROVA. He has AOL. That's stuff. how I'm an old man. That's and they sit there and the people in India, people in India are going, "What? You have AOL? AOL?" They're all laughing at him. Yeah, well, it was funny because I had some tech problems in, in with the internet in my hotel, and I had the guy standing right next to me because they sent somebody up, and I was still saying, "I'm sorry, could you repeat that?" <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on, Steve. People, check this stuff out. It's, it's a great show. I went last year. But we're going to go this year. It's fun. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 430 episodes up there. You can also email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. I'll respond to you. iTunes and Stitcher, it's Cooper Talk. And you can get my app on the Google Play Store. Just type Cooper Talk. It's free. And then go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, after my health problems, I wrote that cookbook. It's 120 recipes, all low sodium, easy to make, no long list of ingredients. You don't have cumin? Don't worry. I don't put cumin in a book. I don't have any pictures, so you won't be intimidated by pictures because that's what happens. It's good for guys who are single and they want to sit there and eat healthy. 
120 recipes. So go to stopthesalt.com, buy it from me, not Amazon or Barnes and Noble, because I make more money if you buy it from me and I'll sign it. So do that. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. My only tip is my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.